Welcome to Cleveland Clinic Cardiac Consult, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute at Cleveland Clinic. I'm Dr. Steve Nissen, and I'm here with two colleagues to talk about the field of cardio-oncology, something that's become more and more important over the last, say, decade or so. Um, perhaps each of you could introduce yourself, and we'll, we'll dive into this. Perfect. So my name is Dr. Modgill, and I'm an assistant professor here in Cleveland Clinic, and I've been here for three years. I've, I was trained in MD Anderson for cardio-oncology, and that's the specialty I've practiced here the last three years. Yeah. My name is Patrick Collier. I'm a staff cardiologist and co-director of the Cardio-Oncology Center. You see a lot of cancer patients. And one of the questions I think everybody wants to know is when should a patient with cancer be referred to a cardiologist? What are the, what are the real issues that people should identify? Well, I think, Dr. Nissen, um, you know, it's very clear there's a very large number of patients with cancer. You know, we really don't have the bandwidth to see every patient. And yeah. I think our job as cardio-oncologists is try and be strategic and try and identify those patients that do need to be seen. Right now, we're focusing on those with pre-existing cardiovascular disease, those with increased cardiovascular risk factor profiles, um, those who are have symptoms, um, and those that may be facing higher risk treatments. Yes. Okay. That's a very good, good summary. So... Let's take those one at a time. Uh, the patient with risk factors, what does that patient look like? And, and you know, what are the risk factors that you wanna be identifying in the cancer patient to know that they need a cardiologist? So interestingly, a lot of the cancer patients tend to have the same risk factor that our cardiac patients have. So for example, obesity, diabetes, hypertension, sedentary lifestyle, if there's a strong family history of any cardiac or cancer diseases, those kind of things we definitely are looking for the patients so that we can risk stratify them before they go for cancer therapy. And Dr. Nissen, this field is expanding so much that we are now beginning to move even beyond these standard risk factors that we know. And now we're beginning to think about things like inflammation, mm -hmm. immunity, genetics. And I think the next horizon will be trying to better characterize these patients in those terms. So development of maybe new biomarkers, part of the part of the strategy to maybe know who's at risk? For sure. And I think, you know, that really is, you know, a key goal, because if we can use biomarkers, I mean, it really helps us risk stratify. Our problems right now are a lot of these biomarkers are not necessarily specific and they're very sensitive. So, you know, uh, we have to be cautious not to overinterpret what these, you know, small changes in biomarkers mean. That being said, they look like they do, they will have a role, uh, um, but we need to try and tease it out better. Yeah, so uh, echocardiography is commonly used as a, as a tool here. Um, who, which patients undergoing cancer therapy should have an echocardiogram before the therapy is administered? Well, I think this is, remains a, controversial area because even amongst the guidelines there's variance and I think it depends on where you are, are treated and how the practice is. I think in general we would say that patients who are higher risk um, who are facing into anthracycline chemotherapy should get a baseline study and follow-up studies to make sure they're not developing toxicity. Yeah. For, for those agents with maybe lesser toxicity 
um, such as the HER2 targeted therapies. We've really been very, very cautious in those patients based upon the kind of our anecdotal and our historical uh, knowledge of how anthracycline exposure has been for the heart. And we probably over-tested those patients. So I think, again, trying to understand the balance of when and where these patients should be tested uh, yeah. is controversial. Going forward, we have new um, techniques that can help us. So for example, artificial intelligence being applied to echo, opening up the area of echo to those maybe novice users. And uh, you know, in the future, I think uh, we may have other strategies to help uh, apply this technology to our patients. People like me always think of this as, uh, well, you're gonna check the ejection fraction and then you're going to look for patients who have a fallen ejection fraction. But there are newer echo techniques. Maybe you could say something about that, those techniques, because I think you're using them, aren't you? Are you not to maybe gain additional insight? Absolutely. So the thing is, what we have identified with ejection fraction from the studies is that when the ejection fraction falls, about 58% cannot come back to the original number. So we have to identify ways subclinically to identify patients who have a decrease in the function but the ejection fraction has not decreased. Is still, still, still okay. So you're going to pick up this disorder before the ejection fraction falls because half of those patients, you're not going to regain that cardiac function. So what do you do? So this new technique is called a global longitudinal strain. So what we can do is we can identify these small pixels in the heart muscle itself and we can see how they move against each other. And from that, we can ascertain what the function will be in the future and predict that. And if we can identify these patients early on and start them on cardioprotective medication, we may prevent actual decrease in the function of the heart. And is this being used routinely? Are you measuring strain in everybody or is it something that's being used selectively? Um, really, historically, we've been applying it quite broadly in this patient population. I think recent data would suggest we have to be careful. Um, I'm thinking particularly about the Sucker trial, which suggested that the application of strain may be not as efficacious as we thought and may even result in patients um, stopping or holding their chemotherapy. So it's not without its problems. I think one of the issues we have is intertest variability with this parameter. You know, just like ejection fraction, these numbers can vary between tests. And these patients that are undergoing chemotherapy go through a lot of changes, not just in hemodynamics, but in their fluid status. And there are often a lot of confounding issues. So understanding differences between testing has historically been challenging. Uh, we've relied on, you know, early repeat studies if we identify changes. Um, and uh, sometimes we need to go to a higher level and, for example, use cardiac MRI. And um, I think, again, going forward, MRI looks very exciting in its application. And what, is the, what is the MRI parameter that you're measuring? So I think, again, you know, we do have gold standard ejection fraction with MRI. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, that's been our go-to parameter uh, with all its limitations. Um, but MRI can go further now with tissue characterization, for example, and, you know, um, more sophisticated sequences are being developed all the time. And I think the horizon looks very exciting in that regard. But you're not really using those clinically, those new tissues? I would say not clinically, but it looks like soon. So it's a research tool that is coming close to being accurate enough to use clinically. 
Now, you know, for people from my era, we, we understand that these anthracycline drugs are commonly associated with and, and dose-dependent dose reduction in cardiac function. Are there other specific chemotherapeutic agents where you're going to worry about cart, heart function and where a cardio-oncology consultation might make sense? Yes, so right now there's a upsurge of this particular group of medications called immune checkpoint inhibitors. Yes. And basically currently about 50% of the clinical trials in cancer are using immune checkpoint inhibitors. Yes. And we identify more and more what these things are doing to the heart. So yes. for example, we know it can accelerate your coronary artery disease. We know it can cause inflammation of the heart. We can cause. We know it can cause electrical uh, problems in the heart also. Yeah. So as these medications are becoming more prevalent and given to more and more patients, we are actually seeing upsurge of a lot of these cardiac issues that we haven't seen. And, and how do you know that the patient's developing these these abnormalities? I mean, what 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 are the things you can do to figure out that the checkpoint inhibitor is causing the problems and they need a consultation? And is there a treatment for it? I mean, again, it's an emerging field and we're learning as we go. I mean, I think as cardiologists, we're certainly learning from the oncologists tremendously. I mean, some of these targeted therapies are identifying new pathways to diseases we thought we knew how they worked, but this is a new biology. Um, and it's, it's just so exciting to work in this field for that reason. But, you know, getting back to your point, how do you identify whether, um, you know, the, the treatment is the issue here? Traditionally, when immune checkpoint inhibitors cause trouble, they cause serious trouble. So it's not common, thankfully, but when it does happen, it's very serious. So for example, the myocarditis that Dr. Mugel mentioned tends to be a very electrically unstable uh, myocarditis that tends to present either with- uh, Ventricular tachycardia? Absolutely. Yeah. And, right. and so you, patients received a checkpoint inhibitor. Now they've, they've had a evidence of myocarditis. What do you do? So right now, the way things are working out is that if they have developed myocarditis and there's actually problem with the heart itself, we have to stop the immune checkpoint inhibitor because we have seen patients who continue on immune checkpoint in inhibitor can actually accelerate that problem, cardiac problem quite viciously. So we tend to stop it and we try to treat the patients um, and uh, with the various cardioprotective medications so that they can benefit from that. And then we try to liaison with our oncology colleagues to see if there's other therapies that is beneficial for the patient while not affecting on the heart. The, if you stop the checkpoint inhibitor, does the problem resolve and how long does it take? You know, typically not. Thankfully, again, we're talking about a rare situation yeah. and these are very, sometimes very critically sick patients. Um, but uh, traditionally, you know, it's been almost like a rejection type phenomenon, what we see in the tra cardiac transplant population. So steroids would be the mainstay of treatment, mm -hmm. but now more targeted T lymphocyte therapies have been applied. Yeah, so this is a, a really a very technically challenging area to, mm -hmm. to, to, ma to manage all of this. I know the checkpoint inhibitors have been a game changer for many of the, the cancers, and thankfully the cardiac effects are not seen commonly, but when they are, you're gonna have to obviously be engaged and, 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 and treat the problems. Um, what about, um, you know, drugs like Secubitol Valsartan, you know, for, are you using agents like that for, for heart failure in these patients? So I think this is a great point that you're raising. What about the application of all these new heart failure therapies that have right. been, you know, uh, so wonderful uh, over the last, you know, number of years? 
the application of this therapy to cancer patients has historically been slow. Um, and that's because cancer patients have been excluded from our heart trials. And same way, our heart patients have been excluded for, from our cancer trials. Yes. And I think from our perspective, with growing number of physicians interested in cardio-oncology, we have to advocate that these patients be included in these trials so we can learn more. There's no reason why these therapies shouldn't be effective in chemotherapy-related cardiomyopathy. Um, but I think the uh, application of them has been slow. Yeah. And there's been obviously recent data with uh, SGLT2 inhibitors uh, in both uh, HEF-REF and HEF-PEF. So we need to know more, I assume, to, to use these drugs wisely in, the, in the oncology patients. Absolutely. And the thing is, and because they are such a rare event in such a small institutions all across the world, we are not seeing too many evidence in terms of how these drugs are affecting these cancer patients. Are there any registries or other... Uh, things that are being done to, to understand this better? So the thing is, that's a really good point. And actually, uh, we are very proud to announce that we are starting this global cardio-oncology registry. Uh, and um, including us, there's a uh, Dr. Sadler from CCF in Florida, as well as Dr. Teske from Netherlands. And all four of us starting this uh, registry. And currently, about 115 institutions from 24 different countries have signed on the dotted line. And pretty soon, it'll be online. And so you have all these 115 institutions that are going to contribute information to the registry. That may actually give you some, some important insights into the treatments and their effectiveness. Uh, that's a terrific, uh, terrific program. Absolutely. And that's the whole purpose of it, because we can see anecdotally what is happening to the patient, but we don't know what is happening in the general population. And the only way we can do it, if we all cardio-oncologists all across the world come together and participate in the registry so that we can have patients to actually analyze and learn from that so that we can provide a better care for patients or cardio-oncology patients in the future. Well, thank you both. Uh, it's terrific that you're kind of leading the way towards uh, better understanding. I, I understand that you have a lot of, uh, a lot of things you need to figure out uh, in, the, uh, in the treatment of heart disease in the, in the cancer patients, but hopefully you'll get there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We welcome your comments and feedback. Please contact us at heart at ccf.org. Like what you heard? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen at clevelandclinic.org slash cardiac consult podcast.